This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the Department of Veterans Affairs is the largest healthcare system in the country. It serves more than 9 million vets. The Secretary of the VA joins us to discuss new benefits, progress in addressing suicide, and the new abortion policy. Then, it's open season for the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. We'll look at some of the big changes to look for and ways to save money. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Starting January 1st, the VA will start processing claims under the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics Act, also known as the PACT Act. Dennis McDonough is the Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Mr. Secretary, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mimi. So first remind us what the PACT Act is and what it means for veterans. So what this is is a, a new law that says if you served in Southwest Asia, so basically that big swath of uh, territory from Somalia in the southwest to Uzbekistan in the northeast with Iraq and Afghanistan right in the middle, and you were exposed to toxins during that period, we now have a process where, whereby we'll assume that if you have a condition among the 25 or so conditions listed in that law, we will assume that you got that condition while you were serving overseas uh, in that region. And that means that you qualify for benefits and you qualify for care. So what this means is that uh, particularly for those uh, Gulf War veterans, those post 9-11 veterans, uh, having waited far too long to get care and benefits for these kinds of conditions, we now have a process to get you that care, those benefits, so we really want you to, to apply. Before the act, you had to prove that you got it because of that toxic exposure and, yes. and as a result of your service. That's right, there's two questions. Do you have the condition in question? And did you get it while you were serving the country? Uh, we still have to answer the first question, do you have that condition? But this question of whether you have it, we will now assume that for purposes of benefits and care, you got it while serving the country, meaning that the burden of proof is no longer on the veteran. You recently started screening for toxic exposure for all vets enrolled yeah. in VA health. How is that going? Well, it's going pretty well. So as of uh, November 8th, last Tuesday, uh, every veteran currently in our care, already enrolled for care at the VA, uh, when he or she comes in to see their provider, the provider will spend uh, you know, about 10 minutes with them asking about potential exposure. So about 150,000 veterans have had that screening to date. Uh, about, interestingly, about 40% of them uh, say they're worried about a particular exposure. Now, that's important for two reasons. One, that allows us to take the next step and look more deeply at what they might have been exposed to. But it also underscores an important point. These are veterans who have a relationship with us already. Imagine the millions of vets not yet in VA care. If 40% of them feel similarly that they've been exposed we have an opportunity with this new law to get them care and benefits 
that they and their families deserve. What's the process for filing a claim, and, and have you been able to streamline that process? It's a great question. So uh, we've had, again, about 145,000 claims filed since the president signed this bill into law on August 10th. My sense is you can see that as a big number, a small number. I prefer to see it as a small number because there's as many as 4 million veterans who may qualify for care benefits under this act. Uh, what I'd urge veterans to do is two things. One, call us at 1-800-MY-VA-411 or visit us at www.va.gov slash PACT. Uh, and we'll begin that process of helping you fill out your claim. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward process. We're just doing now some market surveys of those 150,000 or so who have filed a claim. Uh, as many as 60% of them are answering the question, was it easy to file your claim? They're answering that a yes. I think that's a good sign. We'll see if those numbers hold. Um, but please visit us at va.gov slash pact or call us 1-800-MY-VA-411. What, what about the claims that were denied in the past before this PACT Act? Yeah, we're asking you to come refile with us um, and uh, we'll get that process moving. Now, we have a bunch of paperwork to do. We have to s establish what we call sub-regulatory guidance. We're in that process now. That process will be done by January 1. So if you file now, starting January 1, we will review that claim. But one more important thing, Mimi, for those veterans out there, please, if you file in the year after the president signed the law, so if you file before August 9th, 2023, that means your benefits will be retroactive to the day the president signed it meaning you, have, you're, you will, in, you will uh, accrue benefits going back to August 10th, 2022. So it really behooves our veterans. Please come file a claim. We'll get to work on it, but importantly, it will then accrue back to August 10th. I wonder if you'll be reaching out proactively to vets that you think should be filing and haven't yet. Uh, in fact, we are. That's why I'm here with you today. I love working with you but I'm here particularly today to talk about this among our government employees who are veterans. At VA, almost 40% of our employees are vets. Um, we're talking to every federal government agency about getting with their workforces. Uh, we've already done it at DHS. We'll be doing it with several others over these coming weeks. We're also, you'll be seeing uh, pretty aggressive work with uh, social media. Uh, I'm sure you're seeing reporting in traditional media. And as we approach January, uh, as we approach December, because January is so important for us, that's when we get to start reviewing the claims, we'll be talking uh, across the country in every state with a week of action where we're going to be working with local veterans, with local stakeholders to make sure that vets know what's available to them and urge them to come in and file a claim. Lastly, we're also talking to families. You know what happens a lot of times is it's the families who urge vets to go and file for their claims. So we're talking to husbands, wives, sons, daughters to make sure vets know what's available to them. Quick pause and then we'll come back. Great. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with VA Secretary Dennis McDonough. Stay with us.
We're back with Dennis McDonough. He's the Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Mr. Secretary, as you said, there are over um, 145,000 claims already filed. Yes. You're expecting a lot more. Yep. How many people are you going to have to hire yep. to, to go through all those claims? It's a great question. So uh, we started about a year ago uh, on the benefits side of the house, uh, the Veterans Benefits Administration. In late September uh, 2021, we began hiring 2,000 additional claims personnel to be looking at those uh, claims. That's why now we've hired those people, we're training them. Uh, they're getting up the power curve to make sure that they can make good quality, transparent decisions for our veterans. Uh, we're probably gonna need a couple thousand more on top of that. So the training uh, challenge on the be benefits uh, side of the house is twofold. One, we need to find the employees. Two, we need to train them. That training tail can be up to a year, even longer, before they're performing at the level we expect them to perform. So that's where we are on the benefit side. On the healthcare side, you know, we may have you know several million new patients in the VA healthcare system, which is great news for us because vets in our care do better than vets not in our care. Uh, so we need to hire docs. We need to hire nurses. Let me give you two examples of what we need. Nurses, we need about 45,000 nurses over the next three years. This last fiscal year, we added about 2,500 nurses net-net, uh, which tells you that we have a long way to go, but we have the tools to do it even in a competitive market. Secondly, uh, frontline staff, so uh, in, uh, environmental services staff, for example, July was the biggest single month for hires of frontline staff and VA ever. That tells us, again, we have the tools, thanks to Congress, thanks to the President. We just have to get on it in terms of hiring nurses, docs, frontline staff. We'll do it. Before we leave the PACT Act, I want to yeah. ask you about the timeline. Once you start processing claims, how long before vets get decisions, get yep. benefits, and get care? Well, uh, we want to move with as much dispatch as we can. We'll start reviewing cl these claims in January. Uh, some of those claims will be straightforward. They'll be resolved in days. Some will take weeks, some will take months. The most important thing is when a veteran files a claim, we'll be in touch with that veteran, making sure that they know what to expect. Um, but please file your claim now. We'll begin reviewing them, making decisions in January. We'll stay in very close touch with the vet, with that vet's family. In early November, you had said that uh, claims processing times in yep. general yep. Um, were improving. Yep. How much have they been improving and, and what's behind that improvement? Well, so we're, we're now uh, resolving claims, uh, more claims in a year than ever. Last year, we resolved 1.7 million claims. That was the highest ever year. The next highest year was the, the immediate prior year. Uh, what, why are we moving faster? We're moving faster because we have more people and we're beginning to uh, squeeze out unnecessary steps in the process. For example, we don't want to send a vet back to get one more healthcare screening, one more health uh, exam when we don't have to. We want to make a decision for that vet with the data we have. And then the second thing we're doing is we're using automated decision tools more and more. That's allowing us to resolve cases that would have taken weeks and days. So by making the process more straightforward, by making the process automated in certain places, 
we think we can bring those uh, decision times down further still. Uh, that's what we hope to begin doing in uh, January on these PEG deck claims. I want to ask you about Roe v. Wade. Yes. Uh, after it was overturned, the VA announced it would start providing abortion counseling and services in some cases right. um, in, in the VA hospitals. What right. was behind that decision? The health emergency. Uh, we heard from our health care providers. We're a high reliability organization uh, at VA. You know what that means? That means health care decisions will be made by health care experts. Uh, they'll be made as close to care as possible. We don't need bureaucrats like me in Washington making decisions about veterans' health. After the ruling at the court, we heard from our providers that the confusion about what was applicable for veterans' health was creating a healthcare emergency for the 300,000 women vets of childbearing age who get their care from VA. So we made the decision based on the needs of our providers, but most importantly, the needs of uh, those 300,000 women vets to provide uh, abortion counseling and abortion services in a couple of narrow areas. One, cases of rape and incest. Two, in cases where uh, the pregnancy uh, threatened the life or the health of that pregnant veteran. So we're uh, using that authority now we're obviously responding to public comment on that, consistent with the rulemaking process, and we'll continue to uh, unfold uh, this very transparently. And any thought given to expanding those services beyond those emergencies that you outlined? At the moment, we're providing service consistent with the interim final rule we filed. We also have an obligation pursuant to the Administrative Procedures Act to respond to the tens of thousands of comments that we've gotten. We'll respond to those, make the changes we need to, and then see how this unfolds. Importantly, uh, we believe that we've begun to address the healthcare emergency that our providers uh, and many veterans pointed out. Uh, we'll stay on top of this. Secretary McDonough, always great to see you. Thank you so much. Great to see you, Mimi. Thanks for having me. Up next on Government Matters, what changes federal employees need to look for during this year's open season? We'll be right back. While many federal employees go on autopilot when it comes to their benefits elections, my guest says there are some substantial changes coming for 2023 that you might want to consider. Kevin Moss is the Director of Marketing for Checkbook Health. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So what are the biggest changes that uh, employees will see to health benefits? I think the biggest change they're going to face next year is higher premiums. So premiums are going up 8.7% on average next year. Um, but the thing to know for all federal employees is that the increase is not uh, the same for all plans. There's actually some plans, about 57 plans where the premium's going down, nine plans where the premium's staying the same, uh, many plans where the premium is going above less than the average, and in some cases, premium's going well above that average. Um, in some cases, all the way up to 50% in certain health plans. So if you haven't thought about uh, switching plans, Hopefully, these high premiums will give you the motivation to maybe go and look to see if there's some better plan values out there for you. What about the actual benefits themselves? Are there any substantial changes there? There are some changes. We're seeing less changes overall in the benefits next year. One of the uh, areas of attention that OPM gave uh, in the spring to uh, FEHB carriers was they wanted to see plans do a better job with infertility coverage. Um, and that's an area that's very expensive um, for those procedures. 
Uh, and only a few FEHB plans actually added new fertility benefits next year. And in fact, there's only one PPO plan that added it and only two or three other HMO plans around the country that added fertility benefits. But it is one area that can change every year. So even if you think that you don't want to change your health plan, you should still see, are there any benefit changes that might impact you next year, such as a higher doctor copay or a higher uh, charge for a hospital admission? Inflation is still very high. Is that what's causing these premiums to go up? What's what are the, what's the impact of inflation going to have on federal benefits? Well, when OPM released their information about the 2023 FEHB open season, it, a lot of these increases are related to COVID. So OPM actually, I, I think in their press release, said up to a billion dollars of, of charges were related to uh, the response to COVID. So I think COVID plays a big part. And then, yeah, just the general inflation that's out there in the marketplace. That's what has caused the highest uh, premium increase in the last 10 years uh, for employees in 2023. Let's talk about dental and vision plans. Uh, any big changes there? One big change, all standalone Fed, Fed VIP plans, orthodontic coverage, there's no longer any 12 month waiting period. So you no longer have to wait for orthodontic coverage. So that's one nice thing. Uh, and the story with premiums on those plans, they didn't go up hardly at all, less than a percent. Um, and so there's pretty much the same price as employees were paying last year for those plans. Explain how flexible spending accounts work and what benefits they provide for federal civilian employees. Well, sadly, only 20% of all federal employees have a flexible spending account. I say 100% should. Everyone, every active federal employee should have one. Now, FSAs are restricted to just active federal employees, annuitants, retirees, they can't have a flexible spending account. How they work, you set aside a certain amount of your money every paycheck to go into this flexible spending account, payroll taxes, uh, aren't charged for that money. So you save about 30% on all your healthcare expenses. Most people, I think, have some predictable healthcare expenses, whether that be doctor copays, prescription drug copays, uh, you know, maybe even some other medical expenses they know they can predict. And one other thing that some people might not know is that your over the counter items, allergy relief medications, pain relief medications, those are now back on the table for FSA eligible healthcare expenses. So everyone has some predictable healthcare expenses. This is an easy, no brainer way for federal employees to save money. But if you don't use all the money that you've set aside by the end of the year, you lose it. So that, there is a downside. There is a downside, Mimi. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, yes, you can only roll over up to $610. This is up $40 from last year. And uh, a family could set aside an extra $200 up to $3,000. So there, here's one no-risk way if you've never had a flexible spending account. Just take the, the, the max roller amount, $610. You will have some out-of-pocket healthcare expenses in some way, shape, or form. You will lose nothing because you'll be able to roll over the entire amount, even if you had that year where you didn't use much. So there's no risk in joining this. Well, there's also a health savings account. Is that very different from an FSA? Yes, it is very different because you get an HSA with a high deductible health plan. Um, and high deductible health plans are a health plan type that for many federal employees, this will be 
the least costly health plan choice for them. The plan funds a portion of the premium into the health savings account. It could be anywhere from about 1,000 for self-only enrollment to maybe 2,000 for self and family enrollment. You're able to use that for any out-of-pocket healthcare expenses. Um, and the nice thing about this, there is no use or lose. You can roll the entire amount. You also are able to invest these funds. It hasn't been a great year for investments, uh, but in a lot of years, you will see some investment return that will grow tax-free into these health savings accounts. And a very interesting thing, you can use it for non-medical distributions. You will pay a tax penalty if you do that before 65, but if you have this health savings account, after you turn 65, you can actually make a non-medical distribution and not pay any penalty. Real quick, what's the one thing you tell federal employees to do during open season? Okay, the plan that you have in 2022 is different. Uh, your plan in 2023 will be different than the plan you have in 2022. You have to check, it's changed. Only nine plans will the premium be the same. Most likely your premium has gone up. Take a look and see if there's some plans that offer you better value. And if you are an active federal employee that doesn't have an FSA, sign up for the FSA. Why not save 30%? We're all spending more money these days in a high inflationary market. Take those easy savings that are on the table. Kevin, thanks so much for coming in. Happy open season. Happy open season <laughs> to all who celebrate. Thanks, Mamie. <laughs> Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on our homepage, and we'll be back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.